wonderful music, wonderful songs that focus our attention on what God has done for us, His beauty, His, His love, His compassion, His sacrifice for us. Thanks, Rob. We have been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue that this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been looking at this progression in Mark's Gospel, in his account of the life of Jesus, um, uh, that, that kind of started off with this declaration of his that, uh, that uh, Jesus... Um, sent his messianic calling card to the Jewish elite, to the, the priests and the, the, uh, the teachers of the law there in Jerusalem by healing a leper. And you remember the significance of that, of that healing, that, uh, that through all of, um, all of the history since the time of Moses giving of the law, there had never been a, a Jewish person who had been healed of leprosy, even though there was extensive in, uh, instruction within the, uh, the law that Moses had given about leprosy and what would happen for somebody if, that, if somebody was healed of leprosy. A Jewish person was healed of leprosy. And it had become this tradition amongst the Jews that the reason that God had given all of that information was because that was going to be a sign, a miracle that only the Messiah would be able to perform. And that's one of the ways that they would be able to know that the Messiah has come. And so when Jesus healed that man of leprosy and then sent him to the temple to, be, uh, um, uh, to go through the purification rites, to show himself to the priests, that was Jesus complying with their traditions and letting them know that the Messiah had come. And we saw how they recognized that. Because in the very next account, the, the, the story of Jesus returning back to Capernaum and, and healing the man that, had, uh, that was, was paralyzed, that we re read in there that there were uh, uh, Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law that came from all around Galilee. They also came up from the province of Judah, probably a, a four or five day trip, even from Jerusalem itself. It said that there was every Pharisee and scribe came out to see this man who had claimed to be the Messiah, who had performed this miracle. And in that interaction, Jesus then um, goes even further to affirm the prophecies and the interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies that said that the Messiah, the, the seed of the woman that had been promised long ago to Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman would indeed be God himself come to rescue his people. And he did that by using the, the title the messianic title from Daniel chapter 7 where it said uh, that, that uh, the Ancient of Days sat on the throne there in heaven and, and coming before him was one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven which we recognize was only something that, that is used to describe God. And so there was already this understanding and, and, and many had interpreted those passages to see that the Messiah would be God himself, uh, Israel's only redeemer coming to rescue them. 
And Jesus, using that title, and we'll see that all through Mark, that that's one of the most common ways that Jesus refers to himself, is as the Son of Man. Uh, That Jesus, by making that declaration, he is aligning himself with that prophecy, that he indeed, he is the divine Messiah come to rescue his people. And to save them from their sins. You remember the interaction that was there between uh, Jesus as he saw the faith of the paralyzed man and his friends. And what did Jesus say? The unexpected. Instead of saying, get up and walk, he said to this man, your sins are forgiven. And then in the the thoughts that that questioned him and, and, and were were perhaps a little bit anticipatory of, of his answer. Um, Jesus then said, is it easier to say that your sins are forgiven or to tell someone to pick up their bed and walk? But to, to reveal that the Son of, Mo- of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, he turned and said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And what happened? Everyone was praising God. All that were there recognized the claim that he was making and and realized that, that the Messiah had indeed come and that he was indeed Yahweh himself that had come to rescue them. And he was there not only to, to set them free of the, the slavery to oppression of the Romans, but he was there to be able to set them free from their sins. The curse that had plagued humanity from the beginning of time, he had come to set them free. And everybody was ecstatic. Everybody was praising God. All that were there were celebrating that that indeed the Messiah had come to rescue them. And so what did Jesus do? He then, in the midst of all of this popularity, all of this exaltation from the people around him, he then just rode that wave of, of, of popularity and acceptance and praise and resolution all the way to the end of the point when they would make him king. Not exactly. Once again, Jesus doesn't do what we expected. And as we continue to go through Mark, I would challenge you to be, uh, to expect the unexpected from Jesus. Instead of what we would, what makes most sense is to, to take advantage of all of this support, to take advantage of all of this praise and this, uh, this uh, um, adulation that is being uh, poured out to God before him. And just then helping people go to that place of celebration and taking things easy. Jesus begins to systematically challenge their tradition challenge their interpretation of Scripture and challenge their understanding of how God uh, had sent His Messiah to rescue them and the things that were closest to God's heart. He is relentless in not allowing people 
to wallow in their own short-sightedness, in their own limitations that they put on what God can do. Instead, he blows all of that wide open and invites them to enter into the true purpose that Messiah had come to rescue them from, to, to do in their hearts. He starts off right away here. We're going to start reading in uh, Mark chapter 2 and verse 13. Mark chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd, all of this ecstatic crowd was coming with him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. See, Jesus attacks their expectations of who the Messiah would be hanging out with. The prevailing understanding or, or thought in the matter would be that Messiah would come and, and he would be all involved in the lives of the righteous people. All of those, those Pharisees, those that had, had, had been so diligent through their whole lives to be able to follow the law, to, to make sure that every piece of what the law had to say was what they were living out. The ones who had spent so much of their time studying Scripture to know it and to be able to interpret it. Certainly those were going to be the people that Jesus was going to be hanging out with to, to build them up, to encourage them, and to, to form them into His people, into his, uh, his kingdom that would then establish their rule and their dominion over all the earth and crush the Romans. But who is Jesus hanging out with? He's hanging out with the, the sinners, the, the tax collectors, those that, that at, for, for years had been taking advantage of people, had lived out this corrupt uh, process of, of not only gathering excess taxes for the Romans, but then also filling their own pockets and living high on the hog in their lives while everybody else suffered so much. Why would Jesus be hanging out with those people? Those would be the ones that the Messiah should be calling out, that he should be chastising, that he should be uh, 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 criticizing them and, and cutting them down. And the Pharisees and the scribes just didn't understand. And Jesus in his perfect, simple, logical, and yet 
so completely other. In his way, he, he lays out and says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I haven't come to, to reach out to the righteous, but instead to the sinners and to call them to repentance. And it shook their understanding. And suddenly, their confidence that, that this was indeed the Messiah that was coming to rescue them was shaken. They started having questions that if indeed this is the Messiah that was coming to rescue them, maybe they really didn't want to have any part of that. And there was this turmoil. They were unwilling to let go of their expectations in order to be able to know Messiah and know God for who He truly is. But Jesus doesn't just leave it there. Next, He, he goes to undermine their, their response to the very presence of the Messiah. Let's keep on reading in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. But no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. According to the law, there was only really one official day that was required for the people of the Jewish faith to fast. That was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. According to the law, that was the only requirement for them on an annual basis to, to engage in the, the discipline of fasting. But as time went on, and the, the rabbis and, and, and the, the, um, uh, the teachers of the law, they wrestled through some of these different things that were spoken of in, by the prophets and, and, and by Moses, the things that he had said about the law. There developed this tradition of the, the value of fasting. Now let's be clear, Jesus isn't undermining the value of fasting or saying that we shouldn't fast. But, but their interpretation, their understanding of, of what was happening through the fasting, Jesus recognized that there was, even though on the outside it looked good and clean and righteous and, and, and holy, underneath there was this self-centered mindset. See, it had become to the place where uh, in, in the writings of the rabbis, and again, a whole section of the, of the Talmud, the, the, the writings of the rabbis over the years, 
had talked about the importance of fasting and what actually fasting was doing. And it had become one of the ways that a person would be able to purify their heart, to atone for their sins. It was a way for the rest of the world to be able to see what a holy and righteous person that was that they would go through. And they called it this, this practice of affliction. Because if they would allow themselves to go through that kind of suffering, surely they must be close with God. And it was part of their means of being able to purify their own lives, to make themselves clean, rather than the whole purpose of the Day of Atonement and all the rest of that was to recognize there is nothing that I can do to reach up to a holy and almighty God, to that standard that He has set. And, and, and the Day of Atonement was all about putting our faith in the grace of God to come and make atonement for our sins. There was nothing that we could do on our own. And yet, like all of the Jewish laws and traditions, those had been turned around to the point where that was now we followed the law, we went through the rules and regulations, we did all the rituals and sacrifices and everything else so that we could purify ourselves and then we would be ready to come into God's presence and He would be so pleased to have such a fine group of people come and be a part of His kingdom. Totally missing the whole point. That there's nothing that we can bring. Nothing of value. And we are fully and completely dependent on the grace of God to save us. And so, a little bit more is challenged. And the questions, the whispers that were happening around Jesus were getting louder and louder as people were incredulous of how easily He would disregard their traditions. But Jesus knew that if he was to, to give credence to those traditions, all it would do is like, as he says, sewing a, a new piece of fabric onto an old garment. The reality of his grace, the message that he came to bring to these people, would tear apart their lives. Like old wineskins, this, this new message of grace that God came to sacrifice himself for his people would blow them apart and everything would be ruined. And so Jesus, in his love and compassion for them, continued to attack their traditions, continued to question their expectations and point them to the real truth. And then... Uh, let me say one more thing about that. No, we're not. We're going to keep on going. So then Jesus came <laughs> and attacked not only their traditions, but then He came to undermine and, and challenge in their mind, the very law of Moses itself. 
Jesus took on and targeted the kind of the centerpiece of their whole understanding of what it meant to be a follower of God, to be a peop- the people of God. He challenged that centerpiece of the day of the Sabbath. Let's keep on reading here in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and then ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And then he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man. Oh, sorry, let me say that again. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And then, looking around, said to them, Is it lawful to, on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. So he said to the man, stretch out your hand. (laughs) And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. So the Pharisees went out immediately, straight away. And held counsel with the Herodians against him of how to destroy him. They didn't take that very well. How could Jesus do that? It wasn't just the traditions that he was attacking here. It was actually dealing with the very the, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the very words that God had inscribed on the stone tablets that were, ri- that were resting there in the Ark of the Covenant. These very words from God that, that Jesus was now undermining. But the issue was, again, their interpretation of these laws totally got messed up, got skewed. They saw, they saw in the Sabbath a means for them to be able to become a, a pleasing to God. That they could follow through with these rules and regulations. And let me tell you, 
they took that one of the Ten Commandments and built this huge mountain of laws, rules, and regulations that would dictate every aspect of their lives. And it became so burdensome that instead of the Sabbath being about God providing a, a means for humanity to find rest in His completed work, in His grace, to be able to, to put their faith in His provision for their lives, to, to recognize that it was going to be His rescue that was going to set them free, not their own efforts. Instead, they, they took this law that was all about freedom, about peace, about rest in God, and made it so that the only thing that a person could focus on was making sure that they didn't do anything wrong, that the, the Sabbath became this dreaded day because there were so many ways that you could mess it up. And, and, and it became so burdensome. Instead of having the time to be able to rest and focus on God, all you could do was work hard and have this huge weight on you to make sure that you didn't cross the line anywhere. Not only that, they used the Sabbath to try and trip Jesus up. You know, I, I don't know their mind, but I almost think that, that the account they're talking about, the man with the withered hand, I think part of them was almost hoping that Jesus wouldn't do it. That this was going to be, because this was all about the Sabbath, surely Jesus the Messiah wouldn't turn his back on that. And this would be the, the way that they would force him into line. That, that he would have to then come alongside their traditions and their understanding, and finally they could go, oh, good, he is the one. And that's why they were silent. That's why they were watching him. They wanted to see if, if this Jesus would fall into step with their traditions and get back onto that track of what they knew the Messiah was supposed to be doing. But instead... Jesus does the unexpected and condemns them for their traditions. And by the end, all that's left to them is try and figure out a way to get rid of this guy. We can't ever lose sight of what had just happened a few verses before. That all of these religious elite recognized that this was the divine Messiah. Yahweh come to earth. And Satan was so working in their hearts that by the time we get to this passage, they were ready to turn their back on God in order to move in their direction of their traditions and their expectations. This wasn't just, oh, well, I guess this wasn't the right guy. Let's, 
get, get rid of them and wait for the next one. They knew who Jesus was. Everything in Scripture pointed to this being the one. And because he was unwilling to mesh up and match up with their traditions, they said, God, we want to do it our way. And they sought to destroy him. What are the traditions? What are the interpretations of Scripture? What are the expectations that you have of God and Jesus in your life? What are those things that are so important to you that, that are, are part of your means of being able to, to live out your righteousness before God so that He accepts you, so that He is pleased with you? What rules and expectations do you put on other people about who are some of the folks that they're allowed to hang out with and those that they shouldn't be? associating with what are the standards that you put on our congregation on our church that says that you must look like this before you can come and be a part of our activities to come to our services to be a part of our bible studies to be a part of our family camp events what ways do we exclude people because they're not the right sort. What are some of those tests that you have put up? That unless people interpret Scripture the same way that you do, unless people have the same chronological timeline for the, for the last days as you do, that that's the means that you know whether they are a follower of Jesus or not, whether they are in the kingdom or out. What are some of those difficult passages that are there in Scripture that you have studied diligently, that you have worked hard to understand? And if nobody else, or if somebody else interprets those differently, obviously, they're not a part of the kingdom. They're not really listening to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it is so easy. The enemy is so good at getting us locked into these things that help us create our own righteousness rather than to fully depend on the righteousness of our Savior, of His shed blood on our behalf. And it brings hurtful division in our family. It excludes those that God is calling to join us, that God has specifically put in our midst 
to be able to challenge us, to be able to help us better understand who He is and what He is trying to do in this world. But they don't fit in with our agenda. So we exclude them. We cut them down. And rob ourselves of what the Spirit is trying to do through those individuals, through those that have those interpretations that are different than us, that help balance our, our, our understanding of what the Bible has to say. It is so easy. Satan is so good at playing us. Let me challenge you this week. Open yourselves up to Jesus doing the unexpected in your life. To Jesus calling on you to reach out to somebody that you would otherwise never have any association with. That Jesus is calling you to sit down with somebody who understands Scripture differently than you and to just listen to them. Hear what God has been saying to them through His Holy Spirit through that particular passage. And look for how Jesus is wanting to shape and mold and refine your understanding of who He is and what He wants you to do. Open your hand. Don't cling tightly to those traditions, to those expectations. But instead, allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and to broaden your understanding of who He is and purify His reflection in you. Let's pray. Father, I confess I can very arrogantly think that I know how best to interpret Scripture. That I hold far too tightly onto my understanding of what the Bible has to say and, and impose that on other people. But I need you to, to wrestle open my fingers. To let me to hold those things in open hands before you. To listen carefully to your Spirit's illumination, enlightenment. Lord, we know that there's nothing that you will do that goes against what is in Scripture. And yet even using Scripture... Horrible evils have happened. Lord, we don't want to be those kind of people. We want to expect the unexpected from You. We want to, uh, to instead of hold tight to our traditions, our expectations, we want to hold tight only to You. To know You more and more in our lives.
Would you do that in our hearts this week? Would you do that in our congregation? In this family? Lord, I pray that if there are those that I have been involved in excluding because they were the wrong kind of people, give me opportunity to go and apologize, to repent and confess that to them, to embrace them with loving arms and welcome them into our family. Lord, if there are those who have felt excluded from our midst, I pray that you would help us to be able to reach out to those, to welcome them back into the family, to allow you to use that person to speak to us, to shape us into the people you want us to be. Lord, this has been a glorious weekend, an opportunity of so many relationships to be built and and, and understandings of who one another is. Lord, would you just continue to, through your Spirit, build on that fan, those flames in our lives, that, that there would be just a growing love for one another. Not because we all think the same, not because we all dress the same, but because of all of the differences, the diversity that you have brought into this family, that we would love each other all the more depending on your spirit to be the source of that love through us and in us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you don't leave us in our sin, but that you take us in the middle of our messes and lead us to a place of holiness, of righteousness that's based in your righteous character. We put ourselves in your hands here this morning and in this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.